sun is up, I'm off to the river now Sit beneath the morning sun Gone away, washed away, watch the clouds roll by And there I sit, I close my eyes Thinking, oh, Welcome friends, this is A Better World Podcast 30 minutes of inspiration from the worlds of business and the arts. This is Mark Ross, and I'll be your host. Welcome back, friends. You know, one of the more interesting developments in the last few weeks in this new COVID world order in which we're living uh, involves employee engagement. Uh, The article that really caught my attention uh, with regard to uh, some of this is the article about REI. Uh, REI is, of course, the outdoor company with locations all throughout the the country. Their headquarters in uh, outside of Seattle has about 1,400 people in their headquarters. And they were, over the last four years, building, uh, they were designing and building this brand new, amazing uh, corporate campus and uh, headquarters, uh, eight acres, uh, 400,000 square feet of office space, of which 80% of it's modular, lots of windows, this outdoor feel, uh, internal stairways to encourage exercise and healthy living, really just this, uh, this testament to a future kind of headquarters. And then just last week, REI announced that they were selling the headquarters before they even moved in. Uh, They decided that there were a lot of benefits to selling the headquarters. Obviously, they they expect to make money over the four years that they had designed and and acquired it and built it. Um, But it allows them for greater flexibility with recruiting top talent throughout the country. They're no longer necessarily wedded to a particular headquarters in, in Bellevue, Washington, outside of Seattle. They intend to uh, make remote working, uh, that will be the quote-unquote normalized model for the company, uh, for their headquarters employees. And they're going to maintain, instead of maintaining one corporate headquarters, they're going to maintain several satellite campuses throughout the Seattle area. Uh, And I suspect they will be able to hire top talent from around the country that aren't necessarily Uh, wedded to the particular headquarters and and the Seattle marketplace, which is great. Uh, They're also, as a side benefit, reducing their entire carbon footprint because you're not going to have employees driving to the headquarters all the time or visiting the headquarters and may be able to uh, visit locations that are much closer, if at all, that they need to visit a headquarters uh, frequently, uh, if at all. So this is kind of what we're looking at. Uh, And they're not the only company that's made some serious decisions about headquarters and and bringing their employees into work. We already know that Facebook, Twitter, Slack, Google, Amazon have all made very similar pronouncements. They haven't, uh, none of them have decided to sell their headquarters, but they've all made it quite known that they're not going to expect their employees coming back to a headquarters type of environment till at least 2021, if at all. And obviously, as things develop through this this whole COVID cycle, we may see more companies follow REI. The flip side to this, of course, is if you don't have employees getting together 
on a regular basis in a headquarters is how do you engage your employees without this FaceTime? Uh, you know, we've started to see companies using technology much more. In my last position, I was frankly managing a team in Arizona while I lived in Colorado for a year. I was using Zoom before most of America knew what Zoom was, uh, which added a lot of uh, opportunity, opportunity to engage my employees face-to-face without being in the same room or even in the same state. So, But the challenge becomes how do you engage employees in, say, volunteerism and team building and philanthropy? There are a couple companies that have come up with uh, some solutions that I've been reading about. Give to Get, organization uh, that works with a lot of large companies, companies like Coke and uh, Diageo and eBay and Liberty Global, uh, and also with large nonprofits, Feeding America and the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. They have been developing. Uh, some turnkey programming that allows for at-home volunteering for employees where they're sent a box of materials and to help out with everything from uh, homelessness to healthcare workers and first responders to seniors to uh, ex-offenders disaster relief and mental health initiatives and even racial justice initiatives where they send you a, a box of materials the employee does the obviously the employer pays for the box of materials including shipping uh, and then there's onboarding sessions with the volunteers uh, in a virtual um, video conference type situation and and then there's um, uh, video conferencing sessions to build a shared experience remotely uh, it's not as good as being in the same room or going and working in a soup kitchen or building a house for Habitat for Humanity, but this is the world in which we're operating in now. And, and, and frankly, even when we return post-COVID, I think this provides another tool in the toolbox to allow for engagement of employees, especially if we start to move into a virtual office uh, situation for some of the larger companies. Uh, another company that's doing something similar is uh, is Project Helping, uh, which does it from a nonprofit side, but they also have uh, boxes for at-home volunteering. Uh, they have a box called a, a Kind Box, K-Y-N-D, uh, for their Kind Hub um, division of Project Helping, a- and some of these boxes deal with um, mental health kits. So they have uh, projects that you can that an employee can undertake. Uh, to maintain their their personal sanity and mental health during this very trying time where we can't get together with our fellow employees in person and engage one another. So anyway, all of this I find incredibly fascinating. We already know that COVID-19 is probably going to be the most disruptive event of our entire life. It's going to disrupt lots of systems and we're already seeing it in the real estate market and uh, as a result we're starting to see it as well in the employee engagement department if any of you are working on uh, ways to engage your employees during this time when you can't do it in person i would love to hear from you and hear about other creative ways that companies are engaging employees please just drop me an email at mark m-a-r-c at needleconsultants.com Welcome back. So today I am so pleased and honored. We have my friend Sal Pace with us today on A Better World podcast. Sal is 
the, uh, the former Colorado State House Democratic leader. He's a former Pueblo County commissioner here in Colorado. Uh, he's a national cannabis reform activist and a consultant and a music fan. And we've gotten to be friends over the last couple of years and I couldn't be more thrilled to have him here today. So Sal, thanks so much for joining us today on A Better World podcast. Uh, it's exciting to be here for my inaugural Better World uh, podcast interview. <laughs> so Sal, as I described in that brief introduction about your background, you, uh, for most of your career, uh, you've been in the political world. So, so tell me, I know you, you grew up in Connecticut. You were the youngest of, of nine children. Was this a particularly uh, political family? Did you have other people that ran for office or worked in politics in your family? Uh, no one in my, no one in my immediate family. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my dad, he was a, uh, auto mechanic and my mom, she owned a toy store. Uh, and most of my brothers are, are auto mechanics. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I always took an interest, you know, we had, we had some folks in our history who were involved in politics. Um, uh, you know, but my dad's family was, you know, he, his, his dad and his mom were both, both first generation Americans. And so, uh, you know, I, I was sort of the odd child who was always interested in politics and history. So what got you into politics then? How did you get started? You know, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I've, I've always had an interest. In so when I was a little kid, I used to show up to the, um, uh, the town council meetings in Essex, Connecticut for, they were called, actually they're called selectmen meetings. It's like new England, uh, puritanical style government and, uh, you know, almost direct democracy. Um, when I'd show up and, and, you know, opine my opinion as an eight year old or whatever. Um, but when I got to, uh, when I got to college at Fort Lewis college, there, there were just a handful of circumstances that, you know, really sent me on this tra trajectory. I was involved with um, with student government, and and some of the some of the people I, I battled in student government are are pretty successful uh, operators now in the political world. Uh, Max Zimmerman ended up being um, Tom Tancredo's uh, chief of staff, and Heidi Van Heisen. I can never remember her married name. Um, she's now the head of government affairs for children's hospitals. So these were the people we were battling, but it was, it was one guy, Mike Stratton, who was on the um, state board of agriculture. And he's a longtime political operative in the state. Um, and state board of agriculture oversaw Fort Lewis college. And I was in student government and he sort of, uh, he gave me a bunch of early opportunities. He, he was um, Gary Hart's campaign manager among many others. And I got involved in political campaigns in, in southwestern Colorado and eventually found my way to, uh, to working for John Salazar. And, uh, and the, you know, the, the early Salazar years, I was his aide at the state capitol, but I managed a, one of his congressional races. I was his district director. And um, that, you know, when he, he got elected, you know, for your listeners, he, he served three terms in the U.S. House. And, um, and, you know, that just opened up a whole bunch of opportunities for me that I never would have expected when I was playing 
ultimate frisbee at Fort Lewis College, you know, a few <laughs> years earlier. And then, of course, the opportunity came where there was an open seat down in southwestern Colorado in the Pueblo area uh, mm -hmm. in the state house, and, and you went for it, right? Yeah, actually, my first election for state house, I, I ran against the um, Pueblo County Democratic chairman and uh, in the Democratic primary, really nice guy, um, you know, and, and he had strong bona fides, you know, but, but you know, we bested him and, and ended up uh, in the legislature and, and uh, you know, it was, it was really interesting going to the state house and to the legislature as a, as a state representative when, you know, like five years earlier, I was working there as an aide and, uh, you know, just, just being able to view it from both sides, I think really, really gave me a, a leg up when I got there. Yeah, well, you ascended in the state le legislature rather quickly uh, to become the speaker for the Democratic Party, the, the, the main Democratic Party leader. Uh, how, did, how did that come about so quickly in your career? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think certainly my time, you know, knowing the Capitol and knowing the players was certainly helpful uh, before I before I arrived there. Uh, you know, I also had a I had a philosophy of being a, a team player when I was in the Capitol, and and you know that wasn't only you know with Democrats. Sometimes it, that was with Republicans, where uh, uh, you know and, and team. I I mean I I'm using sort of the the, the broad term, but. If someone was working hard on a piece of legislation, um, it may have not been my bill, and they were struggling with with some of the issues or policies or politics. You know, I always I always sort of made it my objective to, you know, especially if they were good folks who had good intentions, to try to help them out. And having just been around uh, as a congressional staffer and previously as a as a as a, an aide at the Capitol. Sometimes I had some uh, knowledge that could be helpful for folks, and and uh, you know that played into it. And then, you know, and, and truth be told, there was a you know there was a you know a bit of a fight in the caucus about um, about education reform, and um, uh, you know when when I ran for the Democratic leader spot. Uh, you know, I, I was on the side of the majority of the caucus on, on that issue, you know, at a time when, at a time when, you know, a lot of folks thought that all we needed to do was over test students and that was going to save, uh, save education. Um, you know, I was pushing back and trying to, uh, uh, trying to view it a little more holistically. I mean, how do you, how do you test for arts and arts and music and culture and, and everything else, the, the education is so much broader than just what a test score is. Sorry, I, I digress here, but um, that played a that played a big role in sort of caucus politics as well. No, I mean that's an important thing to talk about in this day and age as well. As people are debating what's the best way to teach children right now in COVID, um, it's certainly a recurring theme that comes up. Um, yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to figure it out with my kids right now. Yeah. Well, it's it's obviously shifting week to week here in Colorado, and by the time this airs, who knows, you know, what it's going to look like. Um, in terms of your, let's say, your legislative highlights in terms of 
legislation that you sponsored or got involved in. What are your proudest uh, achievements in, in that regard in the State House of Colorado? You know, there, there are a few projects that I'm, I'm really proud of. I, I helped create um, the Fountain Creek Watershed District uh, focused on uh, water quality and cleaning up the Fountain Creek between uh, Manitou, Colorado Springs, Pueblo to, to the Arkansas River. Um, I worked on a lot of criminal justice reform issues. Uh, I, there's a bill that, you know, didn't get me a whole lot of attention on, on, on uh, parole reform to try to make it harder for Department of Corrections to uh, use technical violations to reincarcerate people who were on parole and use the savings, tens of millions of dollars for, for addiction and mental health programming. Um, because uh, frankly, if we can address the underlying problems, then, then we're going to have greater success than just locking people in cages. Um, yeah, I was, you know, I was uh, very involved in rail policy and helped create the, the state rail um, uh, division at Department of Transportation, um, and I was heavily involved in, in writing the first cannabis laws, the first regulations for medical marijuana in the state, and uh, you know never never anticipated that we'd be where we are now as a as a state and as a country when you know we were and and the issues that we were arguing about that seemed sort of. And, you know, we, we had no idea what the actual debates would be about with cannabis. It's, it's a much different world as we were writing the first regulations. Yeah, and of course, you know, rail and, and watershed protection are, are important issues to work on. But I think your legacy, uh, most people know you for your work in cannabis. I mean, you've been called uh, the father of the Napa Valley of cannabis. <laughs> what was it about Pueblo that made it so ripe? Um, uh, for cannabis development at, at a time when, you know, we were still just trying to get the, the industry off the ground here in Colorado. Uh, well, the, uh, you know, I, one of the, one of my friends in the industry in cannabis in, uh, in Pueblo tells me that the, the best thing about the climate in Pueblo was the political climate. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I ran for Congress in 2012 and uh, didn't win that seat and ended up as a Pueblo County Commissioner. And this was right as the, uh, right as, right as the uh, state had passed Amendment 64. And I'd done a bunch of work on medical marijuana regulations in the legislature, but this was the start of, of adult use. And Pueblo is a community that historically has been uh, poorer than the rest of the state, uh, lower per capita income, higher unemployment, lower educational attainment levels. Um, amongst the, the 10 largest counties in the state, on, on most of the economic uh, criteria or, or uh, scores, Pueblo, Pueblo's dead last. And Pueblo's been in a sustained uh, generational economic downturn for for decades and as a Pueblo County Commissioner 
I, in, you know, upon legalization of marijuana, I saw it as an opportunity to try to turn Pueblo County into the marijuana cultivation hub of the state. And so we made, we made some policy changes. We were the first community in the U.S. to allow outdoor cultivation. Before we allowed outdoor cultivation, all marijuana, all medical marijuana was grown indoors um, in Colorado. And uh, we said, you know, let, let's allow outdoor and greenhouse growing. Uh, you know, Pueblo also, you know, unlike Denver, which was the hotbed of the medical industry, um, Pueblo has a lot of available land, very affordable, um, a, a uh, underemployed workforce that's available to go out and work in the industry. And uh, we were also allowing new licensees or new applicants to come into the industry. And it was a free market. We set up a free market system that allowed for uh, you know, virtually anyone. And there's been some restrictions put in place, you know, since I left office to really slow down the, uh, the growth of the industry. But, you know, if, if you had all the resources and you, you passed a background check and you had property and water um, and you wanted to have a marijuana farm, Pueblo was one of the only communities in the whole country where you could go and do it. And so Pueblo became, became really the cultivation hub of Colorado. And there's, there's something like 150 licensed cultivations in Pueblo right now. Um, and only, we're only behind Denver as far as uh, total production in the state. It's about a quarter billion dollar industry in Pueblo County uh, right now per year. And, uh, you know, the, the numbers are staggering. It's, it's greater than 10% of all the local tax revenue that's generated in Pueblo County. And over the last 10 years, it's been roughly 50% of all construction projects in Pueblo County are related to the cannabis industry. So there, we've had that economic impact in the community. And uh, that was the intention when, when I got elected as county commissioner uh, and we decided, and, and I had the votes on the county commission. My, my colleagues said, Sal, why don't you write the, the uh, why don't you write the regulations, you know? And, and they knew what my, my plan was generally, which was to drive economic development. And we've done that. And as a result, you also uh, were able to give back as a county. I think you give back scholarships to anyone in the county going to a local college. Uh, uh, and there's probably been other give backs that I don't even know about where development rec centers and things like that in Pueblo uh, as a result of all this economic activity around cannabis. Yeah, the, the, the tax revenue is humongous for Pueblo County. And the college scholarship program, I, I started this in 2015 and it's taking 50% of all the cultivation tax revenue and putting it towards college scholarships. This year, uh, the Board of County Commissioners have $2 million a year going towards college scholarships. And when you think about Pueblo being a majority Latino community, what we're really talking about is marijuana providing opportunity for uh, social and economic um, 
op opportunity or for for movement um you know amongst some of the populations that were uh treated the worst by under the war on drugs and uh and, and we're you know we're, we're we're providing an opportunity for for uh social mobility or economic mobility yeah and not only that uh, Pueblo uh, County is now becoming a research hub also for the cannabis industry. Can you talk a little bit about, about how that came about in the Institute for Cannabis Research? Yeah, this really started, you know, I, myself and Dr. Malik Kassan really took the lead here. And as a county commissioner, I spearheaded sending research dollars to CSU Pueblo, Dr. Hassan, uh, put in some private dollars. This was to research uh, the efficacies of, of cannabis for medical and, and other opportunities. And then the two of us, we lobbied the legislature and the, the person who really helped us out was um, uh, Pat Stedman when he was on the Joint Budget Committee, a state senator. He, he saw our vision and a few years ago he he threw in some money at the time. I think it was nine hundred thousand dollars to towards the Institute of Cannabis Research at CSU Pueblo, and now we have a governing board that is high, full of very res, uh, respected members of industry and research. Dr. Sue Sisley is on our board, and you know, known from uh, Sanjay Gupta's weed program and researcher out of Arizona doing clinical studies of, of marijuana and PTSD. Dr. Hassan is on our board, of course, and uh, John Lord from Live Well. It's a, it's a really, it's, it's a really uh, visionary concept that, that the state is investing some of our marijuana tax resources into medical marijuana and uh, marijuana research. Um, and, and it's exciting that it's based out of Pueblo and, and, uh, you know, I'm glad to have been able to play a small part in getting it going. Yeah. So you left your, your, uh, the Pueblo County commissioner position, I guess it's, um, has it been a year, almost two years now? Has it been that long already? It's been, um, it's been, it's been almost two years and yep. I'm so, no longer Pueblo County commissioner. Yeah. So, but besides out there um, uh, donating your time to organizations, wonderful organizations like Marijuana Policy Project and um, Headcounts Cannabis Voter Project, and of course chasing music around the country, uh, what else have you been working on that that uh, that's getting you excited these days? And has any of that been really touching on what really is the hot button issue right now across the country beyond cannabis? And that's social equity, social justice. And obviously we've been talking about this in cannabis now for some years, but it is the hot button issue in the United States right now. Yeah, so, you know, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm involved in cannabis reform. Uh, Headcount with you, with the Cannabis Sweater Project, also Marijuana Policy Project. And, uh, you know, I'm involved, I'm involved in a bunch of other cannabis reform activities um, just because I find myself in the room a lot of the times. Um, and I'm, I'm very involved in, in passenger rail policy in Colorado. And, 
and you know, I've been getting pretty involved in social justice issues, and you know, with George Floyd's murder and and uh, Elijah McLean's murder in Aurora, and just just like so many other Americans, getting sick and tired of of what what this country uh, how this country has treated people of color for centuries without uh, without much improvement or change. Um, you know, it's just it's 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 sad, and and I'm doing everything I can to to take my white privilege, which uh, was inherited to me upon white privilege upon white privilege, and trying to use that to try to affect change. So I've I've been going to a lot of uh, protests and marches myself, and and wearing uh, wearing uh, masks and whatnot. I I helped organize. A, um, a boycott of Fiddler's Green after um, after uh, Greenwood Village decided that they would declare that all police brutality was acceptable in Greenwood Village. Um, and I'm working with a number of legislators at, in Colorado and talking with folks in Oregon and other places about just some, some reform concepts around uh, social justice. And, and, uh, you know, I had, I had someone ask me who my client was and I said, I, I don't have a client here. It's just, <laughs> just something I'm, I'm working on, but, you know, looking at it, uh, issues such as, uh, reparations and jail reform and correctional industries reform. Um, there's just a, a, a whole host of issues that I think we need to look at and, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a you know a lot of lawmakers numbers and 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 relationships and friendships with lawmakers and trying to use that to affect change in a positive way. Yeah. When looking at the cannabis industry as I mentioned, this is this has been a hot button issue. Who who's getting it right? What's the right mix in terms of a social equity program for the cannabis industry putting your legislative hat on? What 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 can pass and What's the right um, mixture, ingredients of, of a good social equity program? I mean, that's the good question. Um, you know, in a lot of, so a lot of states east of the Mississippi, as they've legalized marijuana, they've done a merit-based system or a competitive program for determining who receives licenses. And in you know, in some cases, you've seen states set aside licenses for minority applicants. And, you know, what, what we've seen in some places is, is uh, uh, multi-state operators or, or other business, businesses um, put up a, a front person uh, to, help, to help secure a license, or we've seen you know, even in some situations where people have, have secured licenses because uh, uh, they've been set aside um, for minority applicants and then those licenses get sold to uh, some rich white guy. And let, let's be blunt, you know, most of, most of the licenses in marijuana are owned by rich white guys who were already rich white guys before 
before they got involved in marijuana. And so, you know, not only has the war on drugs uh, been a racist instrument to lock up more people of color, uh, as we're seeing it, as we're seeing the war on drugs um, slowly get defeated, but there's still, <laughs> there's a man right now uh, serving 25 years. I'm not sure if you heard about him, Michael uh, Thompson. Thompson. Yep, Michigan. In, in Michigan, 25 years for selling three pounds of weed. He was in the music industry like you, and he now has uh, COVID. Um, and, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm praying the guy doesn't pass away in, in, in prison here. In Michigan, weed's legal, you know? And so this guy, this guy spent 25 years in prison um, for what a bunch of rich white guys are making millions off of today in the U.S. and, and being heralded as, as heroes. I mean, I, and I'm working for a lot of these folks too, consulting. I'm just saying, uh, you know, there has to be a better way. And so I, I'm, I'm, as far as policy, I think um, Colorado has really taken a good hard look at trying to provide opportunity for in uh, uh, you know in, in recent legislation for applicants of, of color, um, you know I'm I'm proud of what we what we did in Pueblo and providing college scholarships because then the revenue from marijuana to lift people up um, economically, and then in in Washington, there's been a division within marijuana circles whether or not to pass the uh, the Moore Act or the States Act. Um, the States Act essentially says that if you are in a state where it's legal, that um, it's no longer a scheduled narcotic. Um, Moore Act places a national sales tax on the sale and then use, uses those dollars for programs like expungement and uh, minority business, minority business ownership. Um, and you know, I I, I think that uh, you know it, the Moore Act is probably the superior uh, uh, superior path here. And if we pass federal legalization without addressing these social equity issues, we probably won't have the opportunity again. That it'll be hard to go back and fix it. And so, you know, I've, I've been working really hard with Congressman Earl Blumenauer of Oregon. He's a good friend of mine and the co-chair of the Congressional Cannabis Caucus. And um, I know that he and his House colleagues are advocating the Moore Act, and I'm, I'm really glad they are. I think it's, it's the right policy, especially in 2020. I mean, Colorado is still trying to go back and, and fix what they did um, when they passed adult use because it didn't have any of those um, social equity programs embedded into the legislation. People were just trying to get, you know, you know, cannabis legalized for adult use here. And they weren't thinking at that point in the early stages of legalization, unfortunately. Uh, and you're right. It's hard to go back later. Well, Sal, thanks again so much for, for getting on a better world podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to the time when, when we can hang out again and, and get a beer and uh, and see some music together.
So that sounds that sounds uh, like a plan. I'd love to do that. Well, thanks again, Sal. Thanks, Mark. And that's this episode of A Better World. If you found this podcast to be helpful, useful, inspiring, please consider subscribing wherever podcasts are heard. You can find out more information about this particular episode as well as our other episodes on our website, www.abetterworldpodcast.net. From your comments and suggestions and feedback, you can send that all to Mark M-A-R-C at needleconsultants.com. I'm Mark Ross, and I look forward to joining you next time as we explore how we can all help to create a better world. Good luck.